paella, vermouth, and an eggplant recipe from 500 years ago. This week we're in Spain, virtually. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week, we travel to a different foodie location and explore the dishes and drinks to try there. Fun things to do, too. And this week, we're in Spain with James Blick of Devour Tours. We talk about whether paella should be yellow or not, a cookbook from the Middle Ages, and a vermouth epiphany. James Blick is from New Zealand. And so he's got the cool accent, and along with his Spanish wife, he makes Madrid his home. He's also the co-founder of Devour Tours with Lauren Alois, and she was on the program back last year. So if you want to hear that, where we talked about Madrid with Lauren, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. And their whole idea with Devour Tours is to find a way to connect travelers with local dishes and people in cities around the world. So that's right up our alley here at Destination Eat Drink. So it was a good idea to have James on the show. But the pandemic hit and James and Devour Tours, they had to reinvent the company because, first of all, the countries are closed down. Second of all, no one's doing tours at all. So to reflect the reality of the lockdown, they came up with something they call online experiences. That way you can have your computer right from your home and still experience all of these cool things that Devour Tours has to offer when it comes to food and local drink. And James was generous enough to offer a discount code to listeners of the podcast if you want to try one of these online experiences. And I can tell you, um, I've got one booked for coming up, a wine and cheese pairing with Jess. She's also been on the show before with uh, Jess about uh, French wines and cheeses. I'll let you know how that is after we do that experience. And also they have a vermouth experience. James and I talk about the vermouth and the vermouth experience in the podcast interview. But I did want to tell you, I do have some vermouth that is aging in a cabinet in my house right now. So I'm all in on this vermouth idea. I've never done it before. I don't know why, but I've got some vermouth that's aging in a closet, in a pantry right now, and I'm going to let you know how that turns out. Fingers crossed. So if you want to do one of these online experiences, you can get 20% off using the promo code DEVOUR20. James was generous enough to offer this discount code to all the listeners of Destination Eat Drink. So that's DEVOUR20. Use that as the discount code. It's good through the end of June. So you've got, uh, what, a week and a half if you're listening to this on Friday when this drops. If you enjoy listening to the Destination Eat Drink podcast, well, first of all, thanks for listening, and I'm glad you enjoyed it. But if you could, please review us. Wherever you get your podcasts, whatever platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, tell a friend. Help Destination Eat, Drink, Grow, and take over the world one plate at a time. Destination Eat, Drink. 
James, you're originally from New Zealand, but now you have this company, Devour Tours, which does food tours all over Europe. Uh, how, how'd you wind up in Europe? Uh, well, uh, you know, when you grow up in New Zealand, it's like living in a village in a lot of ways, uh, for good and for bad. And so while New Zealand is a place that's very blessed to be remote and small and friendly, uh, particularly in these uh, challenging times uh, with coronavirus and everything like that. The other thing that the flip side of that is it doesn't uh, have the kind of the madness, the energy of, uh, you know, a, a big country, uh, whether you're in the States or somewhere in Europe. And so I think uh, I've always loved to travel. I'd lived in the States for about three years with my family growing up. So when I when I was thinking, when I was finishing up university and I was working a little bit, I was thinking I'm kind of missing something. Uh, and I had a flatmate who was French and her German boyfriend. Uh, and kind of through them, vicariously, I kind of lived this notion of Europe uh, and finally went and taught English in France when I was sort of about 26 or 27. Uh, and just fell in love with the idea of living in Europe, the 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 energy, the history, uh, the culture. And so I was like, I need to get back here. So I, uh, while I was in France, I actually met, I often say I went to France to meet French women, but I met a Spanish woman <laughs> while I was in, in Toulouse. Uh, and she was doing something similar. She just finished studying and had studied translation interpreting, was looking to uh, practice her French, explore a little bit. We met after a few months of both living there. Uh, and then she was from Madrid or is from Madrid. Uh, and so we met and in the end uh, moved back to New Zealand together. Her name's Yolanda um, for a little while. Uh, but then about nine years ago now, came came back, came and lived in Madrid. And so, yeah, I just, I, I love it. I love feeling like I'm in the thick of it. Tell me what it's like in Madrid right now, because Spain took a big hit with the pandemic. Um, I, I think things are better now, but you tell me, what are what are things like in Spain today? Yeah, I guess there's different tracks, right? There's the, there's the economic side, there's the health side, there's just people's daily life side. Mm -hmm. um, and so on the health side, things are better uh, than they were. Obviously, we one of the, the realities of getting hit earlier means that as long as a country handles it uh, well, you can start to come out the other side earlier. So our daily deaths and daily infections are way down from what they were sort of three, four weeks ago, although I feel like numbers are a hard uh, thing to have any certainty around in, with what's happening at the moment. So some of the numbers are being questioned a little bit in terms of uh, infection rates and things like that, but certainly it's a lot better than it was. There's not the same pressure on the health system. So that, so that is fantastic. Um, in terms of the kind of daily life, I mean, you read the the English speaking press and and it talks about Spain as having had one of the strictest lockdowns in Europe and and uh, yeah I guess I guess it has been you know when you compare it with the rules of of countries around us um, how has that felt I feel like I've been a little bit lucky for two reasons one I'm a homebody so um, <laughs> I'm you know I can kind of like get up do my yoga and you know I, I I a lot of my business I can do easily online and things like that. Um, so that hasn't been so hard for me. Um, the other side also is we have a little terrace outside our, in, in our, in our apartment so we can get outside. So for people who really love to get out and about and people who, who a lot of Spanish people and people who don't have that access, didn't have that access to the outside world, that's been really hard for them. 
um, and I can understand that. But now we're allowed to get out and about. Um, the country is is kind of de-escalating the lockdown province by province. So Madrid and Barcelona, the biggest cities, obviously, we're running a little bit later uh, because it's obviously been you know more more uh, people getting infected here. Um, but you go out into the street and it kind of looks like normal life. Um, people are wearing everyone's wearing masks. Uh, but apart from that, um, it's pretty normal if you go and want to grab a beer uh, because currently in Madrid, you can't go into the establishments. You have to be on a terrace. Um, it does mean there's like a queue for the terraces sometimes. And I've heard from friends in Seville that sometimes the bars run out of beer. And it reminds me of traveling through Cuba a little bit. You go to the mm. pharmacy and you're waiting, waiting in a line. Right, right. But apart from that, it, it's very similar. Although I, I, you know, my wife made a great point the other day that maybe too maybe too relaxed you know it's like it can as humans we adapt very quickly we adapted to lockdown in some ways and suddenly we start to think oh we can see our way out of this and it's like well you know what might that look like in three or four months if you know you see people sitting at a terrace table talking and and that's obviously how this this virus spreads so I wonder if we're going to start to see a rise um, in cases in the coming weeks um, it's it's a little unknown at the moment this is something that I've been concerned about for quite a while because when this thing first happened in March, I said, oh, no, what about Spain, France and Italy, especially yeah. Spain and Italy, because the culture is based on such close contact, such human contact, touching and kissing and all these things. I'm like, how are these people going to adapt to this? And secondly, yeah. what's going to happen, you know? And I think you're really hitting the nail on the head with what these concerns are going to be. Yeah. Let's let's talk about some other things besides pandemics. <laughs> let's talk about uh, Devour Tours. I've I've talked about Devour Tours. I've talked to folks from Devour Tours on the podcast. It's one of my favorite food tour companies. And for folks who aren't familiar with Devour Tours, give me a thumbnail as to what you guys are about. So we're a walking food tour company, and really our mission is is to connect curious travelers with with local food and occult and culture in a way that that really uh, highlights and celebrates that local culture and and connects travelers also with the people uh, who are behind that that food and and really who are the 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 wellspring, the source of that culture. So you know when Lauren and I started this company, the notion of food tours, of walking around and tasting iconic dishes, um, you know, in a neighborhood uh, and and having little tastings in various places, had just started to break out as an idea. And what really drew us to the the idea is both we love food and love the idea of of going to you know little tapas bars and trying food and and trying delicious food, delicious dishes that are classic to Madrid or Barcelona or wherever it may be. But I think um, more than that, or, or in addition to that, we love how food is kind of a window into culture uh, and, a, and a way to connect with people. And so in a way to kind of help people understand a city or a country uh, and see it with fresh eyes. So so really on our tours, you know, we serve wonderful food and we really try and back that up with wonderful kind of cultural and historical insight uh, and really celebrate the vendors uh, who are creating this food and, and try and connect the people on our tours with those vendors, uh, which is something that's hard for you to do. If I go to Egypt, how can I, you know, I might go and sit in a restaurant and try something, we'll kind of fumble my way through a menu. First of all, how do I know what I'm eating? Is it the right thing to order? Is it... Um, you know, what is the context of that dish? Why is it what it is? And who's the person serving it? And what's their story? Um, and, and why is this the best place to get it? So it's all that kind of other stuff 
um, that, that really is what I think we love uh, to provide our guests. And that's why we do this, right? Uh, that's why I do the podcast. What is, you know, nothing for me, uh, other people will say other things, but for me, nothing defines a culture better than its food. And this is what we're talking about. What is the culture? And uh, the question I always ask, why? Why is that, you know, why is that thing, why is that particular thing popular? How did it get here? You know, why is, the, yeah. why is this the big thing? So the pandemic comes, you can't do tours anymore, obviously. And you guys came up with what I just think is a brilliant idea called online experiences with Devour Tours. Explain what the online experiences are. So the online experiences, you know, when the pandemic hit, um, like a lot of tourism companies, hotels, you're just like you have a you have to go through these sort of phases of of how to how to manage this and obviously do what you can to make sure your people are okay, uh, and then. Um, you know, what do you do? Do you hibernate? Do you sort of just sort of shut shut your doors for six months, a year, uh, or do you keep busy? And uh, in our DNA, in our company, is really to keep busy, uh, and also we want to keep connected with our guests. And obviously, our guests who were planning to come and travel uh, to Europe, uh, who we, you know, obviously we refunded all their tickets. Um, they can't go anywhere either, and they were planning to go to Europe. So how can we kind of provide some work for our guides, uh, provide some uh, some sort of some quenching of the wanderlust for our guests and the people in our audience? And so we set up these online experiences, which are live uh, from our guides' homes. They're, you know, their kitchens, their salons. There's there are experiences where you can connect with uh, say Hannah in Barcelona in her kitchen or Arancha in Madrid. And and learn, uh, you know, in some of these cases, learn how to cook a dish, cook along with them, along with all that commentary of 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 why paella is what it is, you know, how to do it right and how not to do it wrong. So much more than than you would get from just watching, say, a YouTube video or or reading a cookbook and a you know a recipe in a cookbook. Uh, and we keep the group small so you can interact with your with your guide, ask questions, and we keep them interactive uh, through kind of games through the experiences. And then some of the other ones uh, are not just uh, we don't just have uh, cook-alongs or, or, or cooking experiences. We also have experiences. One of the ones that's been really popular is learn the history of Portugal through its 10 most popular or most famous or classic dishes. Uh, and so that's been really, really popular. And I think people are enjoying, this is Melissa who provides that, who lives in Lisbon, enjoying learning about a country through its food. And like you say, that really connects the why people eat something um, with the, the reason it exists, you know, why is there this particular sausage in Portugal that dates back to the fact that, you know, the Jews couldn't eat pork. And so it's made with traditionally with bird meat. Uh, and that's a dish that actually sausage that now has pork in it, <laughs> ironically. Um, but, you know, you will see that everywhere. And as well as being a delicious sausage, you're like, okay, now I understand where this came from. So, and I think people are using it, logging on to these experiences to kind of obviously, um, you know, do something interesting while they're while they can't get out and do you know be out in the world. But also, you know, they want to keep that dream alive of that travel, and it's a type of you know of, of planning a little bit. Like I, I do want to go back to Portugal at some point. I want to go back to France or I want to go to Paris, so I can kind of keep connected with that with that inspiration through these experiences. So so yeah, they're provided on Zoom and and they're going really well and they're super fun. And they're also an inexpensive way to have a fun evening. I mean, they're. They go for like 19 euros, 20, yeah. 21 bucks American approximately, um, and that's per screen. So you could you could have the whole family gather around the hearth of the laptop and 
do one of these experiences for an inexpensive night out and really have something rich and fulfilling and fun for that evening. Um, you're based in Spain. Let's talk about a couple of the Spanish online experiences. You mentioned the paella in Madrid. Uh, was was the woman's name Hannah who does that? The paella one is Arancha, Arancha. Uh, which is a tough name to say. Yeah, Arancha or Arancha. Yeah, <laughs> press Americans, Arancha. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> tell me about the uh, paella experience. You know, what, what would we get from that? What would we learn about paella? So, uh, you know, this is an experience that uh, Arancha, who's uh, has this wonderful kind of background. She has, on the one hand, a Cordon Bleu trained chef, but she's also just a passionate home cook who cooks for her family, has always cooked for her family, and so does a paella dish uh, for her family every Sunday. Uh, mm. And so really you're yes. getting to experience her kitchen, uh, her dish, her paella, uh, as if she was, you know, preparing it for her family on a Sunday. And so, again, you know, you, you're sort of stepping into someone's life a little bit and hearing their stories. So um, so what do you learn? Well, I mean, when you book, you get the recipe uh, in advance, so you can prepare the ingredients, uh, you can be ready to cook along. And so you learn how to make this dish, but you also learn kind of the, ticks and the, the, the tips and tricks of what makes a great paella. You know, it's a really hard dish to make. Uh, it's all about the, it's, it's all about the rice. Um, it's all about when you're allowed to touch it, when you're not. And so you kind of learn those do's and don'ts. But I think what's also interesting is you learn um, kind of, you know, a lot of people have a lot of ideas about paella that's got to be one way or the other. It has to be kind of really yellow. You learn that actually that's a bad sign because that usually means it's coloring that's in there. Mm. Uh, or people think that if, if a paella, you know, it's funny, you read paella restaurant TripAdvisor reviews and it's like, oh, we had three measly mussels on our paella. It's like, well, that's actually how it's supposed to be because <laughs> it's not about all the proteins on top. Those are almost a garnish because the flavor comes from the broth uh, it's actually the flavors in the rice. And so most paellas might have four prawns as, as literally a garnish. And it's not that it was just be, you were being ripped off. So I kind of love that opportunity to to help people understand so that when they do, so that they can obviously prepare this dish at home, but when they do travel, they have a deeper understanding of what they're looking for um, compared to say the table next to them uh, when they're wanting to enjoy this classic dish. And even the other thing, you know, a lot of tourists who come to come to Madrid or come to Valencia or Barcelona will have a paella for dinner because that's what fits with our culture of having maybe a heavier meal in the evening. Uh, and that's perfectly fine. And, you know, I've had paellas for dinner and they don't taste any different. But, you know, when you learn about how Arancha has it with her family, it's a lunch dish, you know, because lunch is the heavier meal in Spain. And so if you want to have a paella in Spain what, and be in sync with the locals, it's not about pretentiously saying, oh, I'm doing I'm not doing it like a tourist. It's like, well, do you want to eat when there's locals there or do you want to eat when the tourists there? You know, right, I know right. personally if I was traveling to to Egypt or Tokyo, I would love to eat with the people who are from there so I can kind of observe and learn. And so you learn that, well, have it for lunch, don't have it for dinner. Um, so I think it's all the stuff around the dish that is the commentary that, um, in this case, Arancha provides, or whether it's Enrique and his tapas class, uh, that, that really brings alive these dishes so much more than just like, you know, how many mussels you got on your rice dish. <laughs> you, you know, when you say how many mussels on the rice dish, it, it makes me think of the movie uh, Big Night, with uh, Stanley Tucci and uh, Tony Shalhoub. Have you seen this movie? Oh, I have, I've seen it years ago. I should yeah. watch that again. That's such a wonderful film. It's, it's one of my all-time favorite movies. And 
there's a scene where they're in the restaurant and the American couple is complaining because there's only a couple pieces of meat on the risotto. And it's kind of the same idea yeah. about the tourists complaining yeah. about the, the paella. You also mentioned the, the, the yellow color of the paella and yeah. how it might be food coloring or artificial that's turning it yellow. I, that comes from, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that originally comes, that yellow tinge comes from saffron. Am I correct? Yeah, originally it's the saffron, yeah. And is saffron still used as an ingredient to, uh, you know, give an aroma and a flavor to and a color to the to the uh, paella? It is. But, but here's the kind of the beautiful complexity of culture is that, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if someone's visiting Spain and they want to have a paella, I will tell them to watch out for one that's bright yellow mm -hmm. because that will be coloring and you don't want that uh, because coloring provides no flavor. Um, and so it's more of a burnished kind of orange that saffron will provide, not the kind of fluorescent yellow. Right. But the irony is my wife's mother, her paella, she uses coloring. Yeah. And she's born and bred in Spain because there was a period in the in the kind of the 80s where um, you know saffron's expensive. Yes, if you don't have the money, right. you buy something. And so the local local people obviously use saffron, if, particularly if they're in Valencia where it's from. But paella that that is originally a regional dish and now really it is a national dish. There's a percentage of people I don't know what it is, but it's probably pretty high who are making their paella with with yellow food coloring and they're born and bred in Spain. So, you know, that's the kind of wonderful complexity of it. But obviously if you're here once and you're going to have one paella, try and get one that has saffron in it because that's like, you know, that's part of the experience and you want to have a good one if you're going to have one. And as I say, coloring or whatever the, the E number is, doesn't provide any, any flavor or nutritional benefits. When you want to have a paella, let's say you're waiting for your favorite paella place to open back up. Maybe it's already open. I don't know. But where would you go um, for a paella? Do you have a favorite spot besides home cooking uh, that you would get a paella? Such a great question. And it's a question that uh, I, I both love and hate because, <laughs> again, it, it highlights a lot of the complexity around this. So yes. everybody who comes to, to Spain wants to have a paella, and I totally understand. Uh, but I find it really hard to get a good paella uh, in a restaurant in Madrid. There are good ones. Uh, there's a place called um, La Casa de Valencia, the, the Valencia house, which which is a good place. But but locals here, and this is something that Arancha talks about, we don't eat paella in restaurants. We eat paella at mm. home. It's 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 like, it. and I know in the States you have like the notion of barbecue. Uh, when I talk about barbecue as a New Zealander, as a Kiwi, I mean grilling. Right, right. So, right. Uh, when people, what you do at home when people come over and it's summer is you pull out the gas barbecue, you pull out the grill, and you cook some sausages and some steak. But maybe that's not something you do as much at a restaurant. It's just what you do at home. It's part of part of kind of a celebration with family in in your backyard, and that's what our paella is. And so, um, if you're gonna, have, if I'm gonna have a paella, I'm gonna cook it myself um, rather than go to a restaurant because. So much of the experience is obviously the food, but it's everything around it. It's the preparing. It's all like the, the arguments about whether you should add the rice yet or not, or <laughs> and and then all the commentary of whether it was a success or not because it's such a delicately balanced dish to make uh, and requires so much experience and skill. So there's just so much around. You know, you're just like you know standing around the fire or standing around the pipe and you know drinking wine and 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 that. So. 
yeah, that's so much of it. So I, you know, La Casa de Valencia is a good one, but uh, I, I have not had a paella outside. I've had some in Barcelona. There's a great place in Barcelona if people are going to, um, called Chiringuito Escriba. If you just look up E S C R I B A, you'll find it, and they do a great one um, by the beach. Uh, but in Madrid, I, I struggle a little bit to be honest. I love the visual of everyone around the paella dish. So I guess the moral of this story is James. Score an invitation to somebody's house is the way to get a great. Uh, I mean, it really. I mean, it really is. It really, really is. You know, and that's. Uh, I, I guess that's for so many. So for so many gastronomic experiences, it's. You know, the, the the dishes begin and begin in the family. Let's go to Barcelona. You mentioned Barcelona on the waterfront. Um, you have a online experience called Cook a Medieval Recipe, which sounds very intriguing to me. What can you tell me about yeah. a medieval recipe? Yeah, that's an interesting one. And actually, uh, that's one that we, on all our experiences, we have a moderator that just kind of handles uh, some of the technical aspects. And so that's one that um, that I've moderated with Hannah. Hannah is um, someone who's been living in, in Barcelona for a long time. She's studied uh, medieval Catalan culture and food. And so Catalan, uh, Catalan culture obviously being the local culture in Catalonia, which Barcelona is the capital of. And so there is a book, which is one of the oldest recipe books in existence. And so she is very much into uh, creating recipes from uh, these these medieval cookbooks. And so she she teaches people how to cook an, a kind of this old medieval eggplant recipe, uh, which is 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 wonderful because uh, as, as she's as you're learning to cook and you're cooking this recipe, you're learning about what was different about recipe books back in, in uh, I hate saying med- medieval times, it sounds like that, <laughs> that terrible uh, chain restaurants, <laughs> that, uh, which I would love to go to one day, by the way, I've only ever seen it in The Cable Guy. Um, and it also, <laughs> and, and so you learn about that, you learn a lot about the spices that were used and what was different. Uh, and so you kind of get an insight into medieval cuisine through making this uh, this wonderful dish that has eggplant, it has cheese, it has has all these really interesting ingredients that we wouldn't expect to go together, uh, and that don't go together so much nowadays. And just how cookbooks used to be, you know, 500 years ago, there was no like five tablespoons of this. It was just like throwing a little bit of this, throwing a little bit of that. I, I just kind of find that fascinating. So I think, okay, it's got eggplant in it. I love eggplant. I could maybe survive in medieval times, but then I think. There's no chocolate. There's no pizza. Yeah. I, I don't know if I could... Sur- It'd be nice to go and travel uh, for this one dish that has eggplant in it, which sounds wonderful. I don't know if, I could, if I'd be a very good medieval person. I think it would be rough. I mean, I think what, one of the things that Hannah talks about is just the collision of flavors was very different from what we're used to, kind of, you know, mixtures of, of, of bitterness and sweet and very, very strong spices, you know, massive amounts of spices um, that were, you know, often we say to kind of disguise off meat and things like that. But right. I think a lot of it was also um, just recalling back to when I moderated her, her experience was about, uh, you know, the, the food that the people ate, the, 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 you know, the poor people, which was kind of everyone, uh, there's no middle class, um, they ate very simple food. But the stuff that is being cooked in this recipe book, this was a this was a person who was cooking for the kings, uh, and so it's loaded with spices because that's a way of showing wealth, uh, and so it was almost like ostentation over flavor uh, in some cases. She and she did say that you know certain recipes in the book would just be 
um, would not be edible to us today. You know, we couldn't we couldn't kind of handle it. I, I think actually there, in this recipe book there is a recipe for um, for roasted cat. Oh, uh, which is interesting. Oh, <laughs> well, and of course, uh, poor people would be illiterate too, so yeah. a recipe book would be of no use to them whatsoever. So, exactly. yeah, it would have to be for for the upper class, for the royalty. Another thing in vermouth or <laughs> in Barcelona uh-huh. that you have is uh, a vermouth online experience, and. For me, vermouth, I, I kind of grew up in the 70s, and vermouth did not have a great connotation in the 70s and the 80s when I was first sampling alcohol. And that kind of uh, stupidly, for me, carried over, and we go to Madrid and they start talking about vermouth. I'm like, I don't know. They take us to this bar. We have a sip of vermouth. I'm like, oh, this is something yeah. completely different. This is not your grandfather's vermouth. So yeah. um, talk about vermouth culture a little bit and about the online experience with vermouth. Vermouth, like for you, so many people that I've met who have come to Spain have had that vermouth epiphany uh, and have, you know, they know of it. They've heard of it. They're like, is that martini? Right. Um, <laughs> exactly. But, and then you're like, uh, well, first of all, yes, martini is a, is a brand of vermouth, but we have our local brands here in Spain and we serve it on tap. And the bars will often have, you know, two taps, one for beer and one for vermouth. And we drink it straight. Uh, and people's people are like, oh, I'm not going to like this. And they try it. And, you know, next thing they're, they're you know, they're having vermouths every day. And, and, it's, <laughs> and, and I think... Yes. What people love about it as well, and what I love about it, is we have this concept here called La Hora del Vermouth, which means like vermouth time, or you know, literally mm-hmm. as the vermouth hour. But really, it's like vermouth time. And this is something that we have in Madrid and Barcelona and in, in you know, different parts of Spain, but not so much in the north and not traditionally so much in the south. And, and it's before a meal, uh, generally on the weekend, before lunch, you will uh, go to a tapas bar and you will have a glass of vermouth. And this is this, you know, sweet drink that has some bitterness to it and it's infused with different botanicals and spices. It's, it's a wine-based drink. Uh, and you will have that and you will have it with sort of different pickled uh, or vinegary snacks uh, you know, and potato chips, anchovies on potato chips, you know, some canned things, olives. And it's just, it's for me, it's almost like I, I have a YouTube channel and about kind of where to eat in Spain and things like that. And I think once what I said kind of in the spur of the moment about vermouth is, is how I, what I do love about it. It's like, it tastes like hope. And it's like the beginning mm, of wow. the beginning of lunch, you know, before you get to dessert and you feel horrendous and you got to go and have a, you got to have a siesta and it's like, you know, <laughs> you're foggy and things like that. It's that moment when it's the first drink you're with friends and and it's quite strong. It's about fifteen percent. So you you know you feel the alcohol and you get a bit of that buzz on, and it's just so easy to drink. And and I just think it's a wonderful moment in the day. Say you know we obviously eat lunch about two two maybe three o'clock on a weekend. So it's like one one thirty uh, or even earlier, and you're just starting to kind of open up into what is going to be this wonderful lunch experience with friends. And vermouth is like the 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 the, the kind of like the trigger for that uh, and the association with that. So the culture is huge here and it's actually come back. You know, it's gone through waves. Vermouth originally was created in the 18th century in Turin in in Italy and came to Spain in the early 20th century with Italian immigrants to Barcelona. So it's very strong in Barcelona and then came to Madrid. But if you were here in Madrid sort of 20 years ago, it was considered like, quote unquote, like an old man's drink. Uh, But now it has become, it's kind of come back as, 
you know, as we, you know, particularly with more globalization, I think people like to that sense of like, well, what is my culture? You know, you know, where am I from? Uh, what do we have that's unique here? And so there's been a real resurgence of of vermouth. Uh, and actually, somebody told me that vermouth, like the vermouth hour, like that lunchtime pre drink, is huge now because a lot of people who are say in their 30s or you know 20s if they've got if they're starting to have kids it's a great way to day drink with your family around because you can go down <laughs> to the local bar with your friends and you've got the you know and kids are allowed in bars in Spain and so you've got the stroller there and you're you're effectively day drinking so and having a couple of vermouths so i don't know if that bears any you know is true but i like that theory as well <laughs> you know we were in barcelona it was 15 years ago and I don't recall seeing vermouth at all there. And then we were in Madrid last year and, you know, it's exploded. Now, maybe we weren't paying enough attention when we were in Barcelona back in, you know, 15 years ago because we were so focused on drinking cava. But yeah. um, it seems like it's happened so quickly in Spain, this vermouth resurgence. Yeah, I, th I think it has. And I think... I think in Barcelona, sometimes it can be harder to see because of the way it's served. It's often, uh, it's not served necessarily as often on tap from behind the bar. And also for a lot of people who are visiting uh, Barcelona, myself included, you know, we have a love affair with cava that that kind yeah. of, you know, can eclipse it. Uh, but in Madrid, when it sometimes feels like it's beer or vermouth and we, you know, we don't drink as much cava here and obviously wine uh, with your meal, I think it's more visible and simply because, yeah, it's sitting there behind the bar on tap. So, yeah, in Barcelona, often it's more served from like a bottle um, that they will have that they might be filling up somewhere else, but you just don't see quite as many taps. So there is a little bit kind of regional differences uh, in how we drink vermouth. But I'm sure in 15 years ago in Madrid, it wasn't as big a deal uh, and has really come alive in the last sort of 10 years. You also have an online experience called Spanish Wine 101. I love Spanish wine. Um, talk about some of the different wine regions and what we learn when we take the uh, Spanish Wine 101 online experience. Well, yeah, that's a wonderful experience by Nika, who's a wine educator, and um, I kind of hate putting those two words together because there's so, many, so much about wine education that can be so boring. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, when when we started offering our tours, I learned very quickly, uh, and it's often something that when guides start working with us, we really have to train people. It's like you know, when you're talking to people about wine, uh, most people you know love wine, drink wine, but they don't. They're not experts, nor do they necessarily want to be. Um, and so you don't want to, you want, I always think of my mother when I'm talking about wine, it's someone who, yeah, she enjoys a glass of wine and she would love to learn a little bit and, and, and get some, gain some skills to make better choices around wine, but she doesn't want to drill down into some crazy level of detail. Um, that's not really what she's there for. So our experience with Nika, um, who, who is, you know, very heavily involved in wine in Barcelona is really, uh, helping through some key wines, uh, Rioja, Rivera, some of the key key regions, helping people understand kind of, you know, the, the, the wine culture of Spain, you know, how we drink wine, where we drink wine, its history, which, you know, history when it comes to food, as you mentioned, is really the why. Why do we drink so much wine? Why do we drink it the way we do? Uh, and giving people uh, really some, I guess, a crash course on the really classic styles from Spain. So you know what you to look out for if you're in the supermarket uh, or if, you know, if you're in Spain and you want to order it, um, you know, I think it can be very opaque, the wine world. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty highly trained in wine. I've done a lot of courses, but, but I go to Italy and, you know, and I've been to Italy a number of times and I'm still like, do I order this now? What do I ask for? It's really intimidating. <laughs> right. um, so it's really to take away that sense of intimidation so people can have 
uh, kind of the skills and the confidence to, to just really enjoy wine without feeling like they have to sort of like be swirling and becoming a psalm just to like order a glass of wine in a bar. So you guys have, we've been talking about Spain, but you guys have online experiences to virtually every city where you guys have physical tours as well. Just quickly before we let you go, James, uh, mention some of the other online experiences that you guys offer. Yeah, we have uh, we have them from the different cities that we're that we're offering tours in, uh, or we'll be back offering tours hopefully soon. So we have a wonderful experience based out of Paris, uh, which is learning to pair cheese and wine like a Parisian uh, with Jess, who has worked in Michelin star restaurants in Paris, and but yes. again is really fun and and helps yes. people. I think you, you've met her and spoken to her, Brent. Yes, we we talked uh, we talked a lot about cheese. We talked about the 18th district in Paris, and we talked a lot oh, about wonderful. the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great. Well. That, that's 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 perfect, you know, because you know it's again making these things that could become so pretentious really accessible and fun. So it's it's really empowering people to to know how to enjoy cheese and wine at home, uh, but also getting the tools so that they can enjoy both of those in France. Uh, I mentioned with Melissa, we have this wonderful experience. It's proved really popular of discovering Portugal's history through its uh, through ten dishes uh, as a history buff. I find that one that one fascinating. And one of the other ones that 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 uh, has been really successful. A couple of others. One is learning to cook a, a, a traditional Portuguese um, dish, bacalao a brash, with uh, Sara, who's uh, one of our guides in in Lisbon, and she uh, comes from a restaurateur family, and she's wonderful kind of personality, and she teaches you how to make this dish that is kind of like the dish that you know every child says that their their uh, their parents' version of it is the best in the world, and yeah. it's this Classic. wonderful cod dish. Uh, we have cooking pasta like a Roman with Abby. Uh, from her apartment there in Rome and really learning about how to make some key styles of pasta. I mean, we have a whole bunch. We have History of England with Shabby um, through its dishes. So there's a lot on there. It's all on devourtours.com. Uh, you can find everything. And and yeah, and they're set up. We, we run them quite late. One of the challenges with online experiences is you know, a lot of our guests are in the states, so obviously we're we're X hours ahead. I don't know if it's ahead or behind, but when it's when it's nighttime here, it's daytime for you guys. So, um, so you know, we run them quite late European time, so that people can do them um, in their afternoon in, in on the east coast and the west coast. Perfect. Well, we'll look for you guys to get uh, back on the road and actually doing some uh, live tours. But until then, these online experiences they just sound wonderful and. Um, can't wait to try a few of them myself. Thanks for being on the show, James. And uh, we look forward to seeing you guys in uh, Spain and all over Europe real soon. Thanks, Brian. I really appreciate it. We'd love to have you on an online experience. Such a great talk with James. And check out the show notes if you want more information about doing these special online experiences with Devour Tours. Don't forget to use the discount code. It's good for 20% off. It's Devour20, but you'll need to use it before the end of the month of June. That's when it expires. And if you want more information about what James talked about, you can go to the show notes. Best way to do that is go to radiomisfits.com and go to Destination Eat Drink. If you look at the show notes in I don't know, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Pandora or wherever, just because of the way that podcasts work, they don't have links there. It'll have a little description in the show notes, but it doesn't have a hyperlink there, so you can't directly click. So that's why I say it's the easiest way to do it. Go to radiomisfits.com if you're interested in anything we talked about during the show. In addition to links to Devour Tours, I've also got links to the other Devour Tours 
guides that we've spoken to over the course of this podcast. There was uh, Jess from France and Anya from San Sebastian. We also talked to Lauren from Madrid. So all of those are also in the show notes at radiomisfits.com. A couple of weeks ago, I wrote an article, and I've talked about this on the podcast. I wrote an article about the best movies from each region of Italy. And that article is still on my blog. It's at destinationeatdrink.com. Click on blog. But I wanted to mention a movie that I watched the other day. I watched this after I had uh, written the article. So obviously it's not in that article. But I did want to talk about it here because it's called My Italian Secret... The Forgotten Heroes. And it's about the Italian resistance during World War II and the people who worked to hide Jewish people from the Nazis. And the film focuses, kind of, on uh, Gino Bartali. He was a world-famous cyclist. He was a fantastic athlete before World War II who actually won the Tour de France. They talk about how Gino used his access as a famous athlete to help move hundreds of Jewish people to safety. It's really an incredible story that involves this whole network. Americans might think of it as akin to maybe the Underground Railroad. It's an incredible story. I didn't know a lot about this before, and I really recommend this movie. It's very interesting for the story that it tells. So My Italian Secret, that's on Amazon Prime. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Next week, we're going to talk about a dish called iguana curry. Yes, iguana, the little lizard thing, curry. You're not going to want to miss that. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by Ed Silla and the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Thank you, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink. A presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.